0: I pray that as we look in your word this morning, it's with the minds that are open, not not weighed down. Help us to give you the things that concern us and open our eyes and ears to the things you have for each one of us this morning. In this passage in Luke, in Jesus' name, Amen. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we were in John 10 and we were talking about shepherds and it was the Good Shepherd Discourse and we're going to start the Christmas season... Uh, looking at shepherds again from a little different vantage point, it's in Luke 2. This, of course, one of the best known of the Christmas passages. But as we read through Luke 2, 1 through 20, notice in Luke's account who is and who is not invited to Jesus' birthday party. Notice as we read through who's invited and who isn't invited to Jesus' birth. Luke 2, 1 through 20 in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child while they were there the days were completed for her to give birth and she gave birth to her first born son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn in the same region there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly afraid. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told. Now, <clears throat> when God, in this Luke's Gospel account, when God announced the arrival of the son of his love, why in the world does he make it to these shepherds out on the hill? Uh, Just think about it for a minute. His invitation to go witness the birth or the arrival of his son on earth is made to shepherds in the hills. Could have been to a lot of other people. Could have been to, frankly, a a more glorious group, right? I mean, even if he went to Bethlehem, he could have found some of the wealthy or people with more greater social status in Bethlehem or he could have been uh, Jerusalem's just north of there, not very far. Could have let uh, herod know could have let the jewish leaders know or could have even told augustus there in rome who started this ball rolling with this census that got everybody moving down in jerusalem could have told the wealthy ruler of the roman world you know the empire of the day that the son of god the savior of the world had arrived but of course none of those people are invited the invitation goes only to these shepherds out on the hills and my question is what why Why do the shepherds rate with God? Why is God's invitation to this little group, unheralded group, out on the hills near Bethlehem? What gives? What do we need to read into this invitation or this birthday announcement? The answer, whatever we come up with, the answer certainly involves more than I'm going to offer this morning or suggest this morning, but it probably does not include less than this, that in a world in which the proud and the vain and the important or the powerful are honored and given glory by those around us. In this kind of a world, God delights to make himself known to the lowly and to the humble. Let me just say that again. In a world in which the proud, the vain, and the powerful are exalted, God delights to make himself known to the poor and the lowly. Now, you remember in John 10, I'm calling the shepherds the poor and the lowly. But in John 10, when we looked at them, It was kind of in this positive light. It was in this exalted sense because we talked about all the patriarchs were shepherds. So when Jews thought back to their origins, they were thinking back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what were they? They were shepherds. Or we talked about the fact that King David was that little shepherd boy who then became the shepherd of Israel. Israel's great King David was a shepherd also. Then we also mentioned that in Ezekiel 34... God said that he himself would be a shepherd. So when we looked in John 10 at shepherding, it was all in this very positive light. So now we're, we're inferring this morning, though, that the shepherds are the lowly guys here that God's proclaiming the birth of Jesus to. And the question becomes, well, what happened? Uh, the John 10, it's this positive light on shepherds. Now I'm telling you that the shepherds are the lowlifes. So and what, what's the deal? <clears throat> There's a few things at least Goday is an early commentator from the 1800s on the scriptures. He mentions that Jewish manuscripts showed that shepherds in this time frame, shepherds could not be heard as witnesses in any legal cases about the same time of Jesus' birth. That is, a shepherd was as unclean as a Gentile and their witness would not be accepted in a court of law. In fact, like Gentiles, they were considered unclean And a Jew, uh, an observant Jew, was not supposed to even give them aid or even go into their dwelling just like they would not to an unclean Gentile. At a certain level, if you were thinking historically back to the patriarchs or maybe even David, or if you were thinking about romantic notions, Psalm 23, or if you're thinking even about prophetic issues, Ezekiel 34, where God would come as a shepherd, then shepherding did have this positive light to it. But the truth is when we read Luke 2, we're supposed to understand that the shepherds are at the bottom of the barrel and when God makes this announcement to them, it's to the lowly, the humble, it's to the losers of their day. The question obviously becomes, well, why are they the lowlifes? And there's at least a few reasons. They were considered unclean because the shepherds did not generally and could not practically keep the law of Moses. They couldn't keep the law. Now remember... Remember when we talked about shepherding, they essentially live with their flocks. So they couldn't get to the temple for all the observances that they were supposed to, for the sacrifices. They couldn't get to the temple. Remember also, as we've studied through John, how big a deal it is to keep the Sabbath. For observant Jews, keeping the Sabbath was a huge deal. and You know, the shepherds broke the Sabbath every week. Because those sheep had to be let out and grazed and watered and tended or or healed. And brought back in. This went on every day. So the shepherds didn't keep the Sabbath. And also, uh, they couldn't maintain ceremonial cleanness. If you read the law of of Moses, there's all kinds of ways, just in a very practical way, day to day, you're supposed to keep yourself ceremonially clean. Well, they couldn't just because of their type of job. So, So to begin with, if you were an observant Jew, shepherds were unclean because they did not keep the law of Moses. Also, um, shepherds, maybe like in today's culture, like uh, trash removal. It's a necessary labor, but no one really wants to do it. You know, if you... Um, I sit in my window often, used to, in the living room, early in the morning have my quiet time, and our trash hauler would come early in the morning, and I'd say, thank God someone's here to pick up my trash. Something, you know, that you were glad someone else was doing for you. Well, the shepherds had that kind of a job, They were tending flocks and and oftentimes, in fact, there's some thought that these shepherds based on their location may actually have been shepherds who kept the flocks that were used for the temple sacrifices there in Jerusalem. There's no way to know this for sure, but this was the geographical location where some of those flocks were kept. Um, But they occupied this low-paying, difficult job. They're out in all kinds of weather. They don't get breaks or vacations. There's no good benefit package with this. And it doesn't pay well. It's a hard job and it doesn't pay well. And then also, not unlike our culture today, uh, you know, if you were going to be esteemed in Israel at this time, you had to have something to commend yourself. And it could be social status uh, by relationship. It could be financial status. You know, especially in this day, it was academic and or religious status based on the law. You know the scribes and the Pharisees, how much they knew and what rank they'd achieved if they were in the Sanhedrin or the priesthood or whatever. But the shepherds, they failed on all these counts. They had nothing to commend themselves to the greater society in Israel, so they were the lowly. They were despised by much of the rest of the element in Israel. So it's to these lowly, poorly educated, dirty lawbreakers, the shepherds, that this announcement of the birth of Christ is made to. And so you've got to ask yourself again, why is it that God is making this spectacular announcement? It's the greatest news in the history of the world. And it's tied, of course, to the resurrection, we could say theologically or soteriologically related to salvation, that the resurrection is more important, that salvation completed. But there's no resurrection if there's no incarnation. This is the beginning of the good news, God come to earth. To save man. This is it. And the announcement goes out to these lowly guys outside Jerusalem, these dirty guys outside Jerusalem. And again, my my theory and what I'm offering to you this morning, it is because particularly God delights to make himself known to the lowly in this world. Now, this doesn't just start with the gospel accounts, just I'm going to rehearse a few verses with you. You can try and skip through if you want and keep up with me, but if you can't, don't worry. But if you look through all the scriptures, you'll see the same theme played out again and again and again and again. Job 5.11, God says, He sets on high those who are lowly. When God's looking for someone to exalt, Job says He takes the lowly and He sets them on high. Psalm 25.9 says, God leads the humble in justice. God teaches the humble His way. When God wants to instruct someone and lead someone, you know who He likes to look down and choose? the humble, and the lowly. Psalm 138. Though the Lord is exalted, here's God way up here, exalted on high, yet He regards the lowly. And when it says He regards, it's not just that He's aware of the lowly. He's giving His positive attention to the lowly. He's accommodating the lowly. He's looking for the lowly to help them. Isaiah 57 is one of the great ones. It says, Thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. Uh, Think of Isaiah 6. When Isaiah goes to heaven and he sees God in his glory high and lifted up, his train fills the temple, the angels are crying out, holy, 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 Isaiah can't stand up. He just falls down because of God's glory. This is the God who says, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. That's true. Up in heaven, exalted, worshipped, And I dwell with the contrite and the lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, God's this God of extremes. He says, on one hand, I'm holy, I'm totally removed from all sin and and anything deficient in that way. I'm exalted high in heaven. And the other place I like to call home, he says, is with the lowly and the contrite like these shepherds. So God, God lives in the exalted position on high. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> and he dwells with the lowly or the contrite. Becky, if I quit breathing, come up and hit my chest, okay? I love that verse in, in Isaiah. When Jesus, when you move into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the lowly are the contrite in spirit. Why? Because God will give them his kingdom. Who does God give the kingdom to? Everything he values and himself, he gives it to the poor in spirit, those who recognize their estate before God, the humble and the lowly. In James 4, 6, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want to be opposed by God, all you've got to do is think too highly of yourself. Thank you. Thanks. God gives grace to the humble. God gives favor to the humble. But he opposes the proud. He's a brick wall in front of the proud. If you want God's help, if you want him to be able to exalt you, to lead you, to teach you, all you've got to do is be among the humble and the lowly. I love this verse in Acts 4 also. You know, after the resurrection, these fishermen are talking about the crucified Nazarene, and they're getting in a little trouble, and so the Jewish leaders are calling them in. And as they, these esteemed, respected, socially important Pharisees and leaders observed, the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. All they had to do is open their mouth, and these guys know they don't know much. They, they didn't go to they don't have the right accent and they don't speak in a manner that we know they would have had a formal education. But these are the folks that Jesus chose to be his representatives on earth. Most of them were blue-collar workers, we'd say, you know, the fishermen, a couple of exceptions certainly, but for the most part they're blue-collar Fisherman types, these are the uneducated, lowly that Jesus chose to be his disciples and apostles. And then also in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul wrote to a church that lived in a culture much like the United States is today, he told the church in Corinth, just like if we were sitting here today, he says, guys, take a look around you and think about this. 1 Corinthians one twenty-six: consider your calling, and by this he means the people that you see in the church in Corinth Think about what they're like, what their backgrounds are like, what their history is like, what their status in society is like. Consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, powerful, not many noble, well-born, or important socially. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He says, when you look in your own midst, you'll see that your church, your group is made up of the lowly and the humble much more so than it is the elite or the powerful. He says, the base things, Paul is calling these Christians the base elements of the world. If you get this, they, they could have been insulted if they wanted to be. been. That is, God, when he chose you, Corinthians, he chose the bottom of the barrel. Or he chose the despised like these shepherds in Judea. That's who he chose when he was making sure folks came into his kingdom, the lowly and the despised. God is disposed to regard or to look to or to exalt or to accommodate or to hear the prayers of or to teach or instruct or whatever you want to say, the lowly and the humble on the earth. That's who he particularly likes to reveal himself to and to inform about what he's doing on the earth, the humble and the contrite. We'll talk in a minute about uh, what that looks like. But let me just rehearse for you briefly. When we're talking about humility and lowliness of mind or poverty of spirit, Matthew 5, we are not talking about some false sense in our mind in which we talk ourselves down. We're talking about a hard-headed reality about who we are and who we are not, about what we have or have or what we don't have. In the end, it's knowing that God's God and we're not. That's the ultimate humility. God's God and I'm not. In Jeremiah 9, when Jeremiah God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, when you're boasting, he says, if you're mighty, don't boast about that. If you're powerful, wealthy, he names the kinds of things that we can boast about on earth. He says, don't boast about any of that. But if you want to boast, if you want to brag, if you want to exalt yourself, he says, do it this way, let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands that I am God. And in fact, some of these other texts, if you look up the references, you'll see that when God says, if you're going to boast, boast in me, not in yourself. Later on, Paul will also say, I think it's 2 Corinthians, if you have good looks, if you have a genius mind, if you have... A well-born status socially or your family connections or whatever, um, what of any of those things did you deliver to yourself? What of any of those things did you get by yourself? None. If you're handsome or lovely, God gave you those looks. If you have been born into a well-placed family, you didn't do that for yourself. God did. The gifts, the talents, everything you and I can produce, we do so because God gives us breath He gives us minds to think, hands to use, etc. So Old and New Testament, God says if you want to boast, if you want to brag about someone or something, he's the one to brag about, not ourselves. Paul says, what do you have that you weren't given? That's the reality check. So it's absolutely appropriate for for us to be humble. It's simply an acknowledgement that God's God and we're not. And if I am well-born, if I have financial or social or economic status, that's all fine. I simply don't boast in that. I can acknowledge that and say, yes, God has blessed me with uh, success in society or cultural standing or financial or economic or career, whatever. And I turn around and I say, thank you, God, for that blessing in that way. That's humility. That's what God's looking for if you look at your life, if you, or if you look around this church, like the Corinthians, and you say, what a bunch of losers, or I'm a loser, then really, in this sense, you're in the place of blessing. Right? Because God delights, particularly, to make himself known, and to exalt, and to accommodate, and to listen to, and answer the prayers of the lowly, and the humble. So if I say, boy, you're a loser, you could say, wow, isn't that great? Or if I lament to myself... You know, I just don't have what it takes. That's okay, because I'm acknowledging to God where I'm really at, and that means I'm in the place that God can reach down and say, Mike, I can help you with that. You're humble, you're the lowly, I can work with that. In fact, if you look through the scriptural accounts, you'll see generally God chooses the lowly and the humble to work through so the person he's using knows it's not his power that accommodates God's will. And so that the larger world around them knows the same thing. If you remember the story of Gideon, which my men's group was talking about yesterday morning, Gideon starts out against an army with a fair-sized Jewish army. And God says, that's not what I'm after. And so God constrains him to cut the number of his army down to 300 men so that when they rout that enemy army, everyone will know they didn't do it, God did. And that's the thing for us. If we say we don't have what it takes in any of these areas or arenas, that's great because then God says, you're in a position for me to help. You're the kind of person I want to come in and make known myself to and my ways and what I'm doing. So if you're a loser, if you're in that social low caste, or if you're at the bottom of the barrel with those shepherds, you're actually in good standing. You're in a good place. You can rejoice. You know, on the other hand, you might say to yourself, you know, gosh, uh, I have a successful career and, and I'm incredibly good looking too. And I, you know, God blessed me with good looks or, or I am financially well off or in whatever ways that the world counts important. You look at your own life and you say, you know, gosh, God has blessed me in these ways. I really do have these things. There's no inherent downside to that. Because in the end, this lowliness of mind or this humility is an attitude of heart. It is not actually tied to what you have or don't have. Have you ever known people who were the losers of the world, who were nevertheless as proud and vain as if they owned the world and had the world in their back pocket? They exist. And there's lots of them. On the other hand, have you ever known someone who was very successful in life in one sphere or another, and you you might have started thinking you resent their success and you get to know them a little bit and you say wow they're really a great guy or a great gal or they are humble they're not stuck up or whatever because in the end the humility does not come from what you have or you don't have it comes from your attitude of heart and the attitude of your mind it's the way you look at these things so even if you are among the successful in the world, it doesn't mean that God's not willing and ready to accommodate you also. Because in the end, it is this attitude of heart. It's this attitude of mind in which we engage the world and God that allows us to be among the humble and the lowly that God can exalt and work with. Well, if you ask, what does humility look like? Uh, if I want to be in this happy group, that's included in the birthday announcement. What does it take to be among the lowly? What does it take to be among the humble? The reality check is certainly the beginning of that. That is, God's God, I'm not. That's kind of where we start. Let me read to you, though, from 1 Peter 5 and also James 4. God says something along this line about humility. He says in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves under the hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Peter says, humble yourselves. You can be rich or you can be poor. You can be successful or you can be unsuccessful and you can still do exactly what Peter says to humble yourself before God. James 4 says the same thing. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. What does it mean to humble ourselves? I'll offer a few thoughts here. The first is this. Especially in light of the incarnation. You know, the whole gospel story, Christmas is all about God humbles himself to become a man, to enter the world, to become the Lamb of God who will take on the sins of the world so that you and I can be saved. And let me just offer this thought. It is impossible for any human being to be humble in any biblical sense and reject Jesus Christ as Savior. Absolutely impossible. Are you with me? Do you follow the thought here? God humbles himself from this high and exalted place that Jesus lived as God the Son before the incarnation. He humbles himself and becomes this little baby down in the dusty regions of Palestine. Becomes sin on our behalf on the cross. Dies, takes all the penalty due us by just God on the cross. Dies and rises from the dead. How possible do you think it is for us to say... I reject Jesus as Savior, but I'm going to humble myself otherwise. It is the ultimate of arrogance and pride in the end to reject Jesus as Savior and try to be or appear humble. The first or the initial act of humility from any human being before a holy God is to say, I'm a sinner. My life is deficient. And I acknowledge that Jesus is your provision for my dilemma. And I entrust myself to christ i accept this offer of salvation i embrace this messiah king this little baby who becomes the lamb of god on the cross i accept who he is and what he did for me that is the first and most important act of humility so when peter and james say humble yourself this is the way you start you say i'm a sinner my life is deficient according to holy god and jesus is the solution to my dilemma And I acknowledge that and I accept that. That's the first act of humility. Apart from this, there is no humility. We're thumbing our nose at God apart from this. No matter how nice a person, no matter how lowly or exalted we appear to the rest of the world, to refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Savior is the ultimate act of arrogance. You cannot humble yourself refusing Christ and humble yourself. It's impossible. Once you've initiated this life of humility through acknowledging your sin and accepting christ it goes on a little bit though you know uh, have you known christians those who know christ they're going to heaven who who aren't very nice people no one in this room i'm sure but there are a few of them around or christians who appear proud and vain i have i've met a few of those too Entering this life of humility or lowliness of mind or the reality check about who we are and aren't continues, though, as you live because it requires you in humbling yourself to acknowledge your sins day by day, week by week, month by month. And to continue to humble yourself before God means when you blow it, to go to Him and to confess your sins and to receive again His forgiveness. And you know, all of us, James says in his epistle earlier, we all err, we all sin, we all fall short in many ways. John says, we've mentioned this before, if you say you don't sin, you're lying. We all sin. So to maintain a humble mind or a humble attitude before God, one of the other things we've got to do is simply take our sins to God. Lord, I've blown it again. Thanks for forgiveness in Christ. That's humility and acknowledgement of my deficiency in word, in thought, in deed, in omission, in commission. Again, it's not hard for us to reflect on a day or a week or a month and realize we've simply missed the mark. We've blown it. And it's to confess that to God and receive forgiveness again. Also though, you know, you can't appropriately or biblically uh, entertain a humble position before God if you're not also humble towards others. So let's say I sin and I confess my sin to God and I've I am brought back into right relationship. If, I, if that sin has been against another person, I need to go and confess my sin to that other person also and ask for their forgiveness. I can't just be humble one way, as it were. My humility has to be both towards God and towards others. And when we sin against others, and we do, we need to apologize. We need to confess that sin to the other person and ask their forgiveness. You know, and and if you live, if you're in a family, if you work with someone, uh, you know that uh, maybe a day or a week or a month doesn't go by in which you haven't sinned against each other. And humility means you go to the other person and say, I'm sorry, I blew it. Dan gave a great example of practicing that with someone he had to apologize to. It was very difficult to do, but he knew that's what God required. That's humility. That's occupying the lowly place. That's absolutely appropriate. You've got to confess your sins to others when that's appropriate. Here's another thing. To be humble, to humble myself before God, uh, it's to thank Him. This is easy to do. It's something that we often don't do. If you just stop, if you just pause long enough and just start rolling over in your mind the things that God has done for you that you have in your life, that you've experienced, that you're looking forward to, that you can thank God for. You know, if you're not doing it, it's easy to just get anxious or bitter or resentful or whatever. But when you just start in your mind saying, Lord, thank you for the warm house. I woke up in this morning. Thanks for the breakfast I had this morning. Thanks that I've got a car that works. Thanks that I've got relatively good health. Thanks that I have an income. If you just start rolling the tapes of all the ways God has blessed you and thank Him for it, that's humble. That's humility. Humility. That's and it totally changes your outlook and it reminds you to be grateful to God God's this guy who's blessed you with everything and it's easy to carry around a chip on our shoulder for the things in our life that aren't what we want them to be but if you start giving God thanks you're occupying the right place again you're acknowledging his benevolence and his blessing to you and you're doing what you should do you're turning around and saying thank you thank you Lord thank you for that Here's another thing I do. <clears throat> it's to meditate on how big or how great God is. How big or how great God is. If you just say that, it doesn't make an impact. So one of the things I do is I go out uh, late at night most nights. And if it's cold, that's even better. I don't, I'm not out there very long. Uh, late at night before I go to bed and early in the morning when I get up for my quiet time, I go outside and I look up at the stars. If there's clouds out, I don't bother. But I go out and I look at the stars because when I look at the starry sky, I'm reminded how vast the universe is that we occupy. Light years, you know, it takes starlight years and years and years to get here. And I'm looking at these points of light and and I gain some sense of how big this universe is and how small I am. And then I read a passage like Isaiah 40 or some of the other Isaiah passages and God says the earth and everyone and everything on it, it's like a speck on the scales that I hold in my hand. And I'm like, wow, God's really big and I'm really small. Or the Isaiah passage says God stretches out the heavens, that's the starry sky, just like the span of His hand. God says that universe that I look at and I marvel at, it's not so big, I can pick it up like a basketball. God's big and I'm small and when I look at the night sky and the stars I'm reminded how big He is and how little I am. And when I read these passages in Isaiah I'm reminded how big God is and how little I am in comparison. Let me close this thought with about humbling ourselves. There's another Isaiah passage that's really important, I think, just on gaining perspective of humility and lowliness so that God can bless me, so that I'm among that happy group of shepherds who get the invitation to the Christmas party, to the birthday party. Isaiah 66.2 says this. God's speaking of this vast universe. He says, My hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, the architect of the universe, the one who measures the universe with the span of his hand says, but this is the one I'm interested in. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. This is a great memory verse for you if you don't have this one, Isaiah 66, 2. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. And Let me just expand on this briefly. You know, in the day in which the Gospels occurred, the king had the power of life and death, literally. If you walked before a king, that king could simply say off with his head, and off your head came. If you think about Herod and John the Baptist, he's in prison. Um, They say, we want his head, and so Herod says, off with his head, and and off it comes. To stand in the presence of the king in these days was literally your life could be forfeit in an instant by a word by a word, or by the gesture of a thumb. He lives or he dies, up or down. God says, God is the great high king. And when you and I think of the great high king, he has the power of life and death. He's the creator. His word is powerful. So in Isaiah, he says, to this one I'll look, to the humble and the contrite, And what are they characterized by? They tremble at my word. See, they know who God is. They know he's the architect of the universe. They know he's the one with the power of life and death. So when he speaks, they listen. And then more than that, they obey. To tremble at his word, I think, means to reverence God, to respect God enough to listen. It's to have the appropriate fear for the person of God, his majesty and his magnitude in his power that we listen to what he says and we do it. You know you can't listen to what God says generally if you're not reading his Bible, right? You've got to be in the book. We can't tremble at his word if we're not in it, if we don't hear it or read it. You know, if we appropriately fear and reverence God, if we're humble appropriately before God, we're in his word. And then we do it. And then we humbly confess our sins when we fail to fear Him and to keep His word. But to tremble at His word, this is part of being humble and lowly. It's to occupy the place God loves to bless. It's to fear Him enough to listen to what He says and to do it. So in Luke 2, as we enter the Christmas season, think about this. When God makes that first Christmas Day announcement, when He gives the invitations to His Son's birthday party, It's to these lowly, down-and-out, bottom-of-the-barrel shepherds there in the hills who are stuck out on the hills at night because that's what their job required. It's not to the grand and the powerful and the well-known and the rich and the famous. It's to the lowly shepherds out there on the hills of Palestine. And also think of this. He not only makes the announcement to the lowly, but he was the lowly. That is, when God lowered himself, condescended to become man, and not only to become any man, could have come as a king the first time, but he didn't. He came as this lowly person, born to a lowly shepherd from the wrong side of the tracks up there in Nazareth, in Galilee, the area near where the Gentiles lived. He humbled himself even further. So you could say, in a sense, when Jesus makes that birthday announcement to the lowly shepherds, he's simply calling to his own because he's the God who humbled or lowered himself. He's calling to his own when he announces it to the lowly. By the way, too, you know as you enter the Christmas season, this season is fraught with difficulties. You'll be spending time with family members you'd rather not see. You'll be uh, tempted to stress about uh, Christmas Day or Christmas Eve preparations or Finance is related, do I buy this or not, or do I really have to get a gift for someone or not? In other words, it's a great time on one hand, but it's a season fraught with potential temptations to sin and anxiety and worry. And you know, to start that Christmas season, we're still at the front end, to start that Christmas season simply getting before God and reminding yourself, God, you're God, and I'm not and I'm going to refuse to worry about all the things that are going to come up this Christmas season, and I'm going to try and honor you and be a help or a blessing to those around me this Christmas season, you'll have God's help. You'll be just like the shepherds. You'll be the one He'll be speaking to. You'll be in that happy company that God's regarding, listening to, helping, teaching. You know, today God is still revealing Himself to the humble and the lowly, And so when we humble ourselves, when we occupy, take that place of the lowly, we're putting ourselves with the shepherds. We're in the place where God can bless, where we're the ones He's inviting to that Christmas Day party. So this Christmas season, just as we get started, just tell yourself this, Lord, I want to humble myself before you this Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by the fact, again, that Those things that have power to bless often have power to be less than a blessing, to feel like a weight. And as we engage in the Christmas season, Lord, there are all kinds of opportunities to worry and anxiety, to stress, to sin. Father, help us just to remind ourselves that you're God, that our lives are in your hand, that you sent your Son to bless us that he died on the cross for our sins to bless us, Lord, that he rose from the dead to justify us, to make us your own. Lord, I pray for each one of us that this Christmas season is a time of a sense of your blessing on us. And Lord, I pray that we humble ourselves each day by acknowledging your lordship, your kingly status, by coming to you in your word, by fearing you enough to listen to what you've said, and to keep those things you tell us to do. Lord, not legalistically to justify ourselves, but because we know who you are and because we want to honor you. Lord, thanks that any of us can be the ones you're speaking to, raising up, glorifying, helping, accommodating, just by taking our appropriate place of humility. Thanks that you condescended, Lord, to become one of us so that you could raise us up with Christ, and exalt us with him in heavenly places. We thank you in his name. Amen.